Heavenly Father, we thank you for the marvellous privilege it is to have your word before us, that contained in this Bible before us, we have the very words of God, the God who made everything, the God who sent Jesus Christ into the world, has spoken and has made sure it is written down so that we have it right before us today. Lord, may we realise that when we read this book, we're not reading any, it's not like any other book that we read, but this is God speaking. But Lord, we do pray that you may help us to understand what you say. When we read other books, we do have difficulty sometimes understanding what the author's intent was. And the same thing happens when we read your word. The blindness that we have of sin gets in the way and we cannot understand. So give us your Holy Spirit's help this morning so that we can comprehend what you have said. And may the truth be apparent. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a child, I always longed for the day when I'd be above the laws of my parents, when the rules of the household would no longer apply to me. I'd be able to not go to school if I didn't want to. I'd be able to eat what I wanted. I'd be able to play computer games as much as I liked. And I'd be able to buy what I wanted. I'd be able to buy lots of toys. I'd have pretty much what mum has in her wallet, which seems to be a never-ending flow of cash. And I would be able to watch television as well. I grew up in a home where we didn't actually have television. And so I was longing for the day when I would be old enough to make my own decision and be able to connect myself to the television network. And so when I was 17, I did so. I um, got TV and then I uh, also signed up for Foxtel and, uh, and so then watched more, even more TV. And now I think I've come full circle and we don't actually have the television connected in our own home now. Um, I started to see some of the, the reasons why my parents thought it's probably not the best thing to have in the home at all. Uh, and so I wanted to grow up and be above the law of my parents. I wanted to be above the law, the rules that they laid down and be the master of my own life. And I think that's a desire that's in all of us, is to desire to be above the laws, not just the laws of our parents, but the laws of the land, to be above them and so that they don't apply to us. And as a Christian, there's a temptation to think that we are above the law of God because Jesus has fulfilled the law in his death and resurrection. The law has been completed for us, so we are above the law. We are no longer under the law, but we're above it. And so that means then, of course, that we can sin as much as we like, doesn't it? Because we are above the law. The law has been fulfilled in Jesus, and so that means that we can just sin all that we want. Is that true? Are we allowed to sin as much as we like because Jesus has fulfilled the law? Well, the first thing to look at that is, of course, did Jesus actually fulfill the law for us? Did he fulfill it? And so can we sin as much as we like because he has fulfilled it? And so my first main point this morning is that Jesus has indeed made you righteous and fulfilled the law. I've got three main points this morning and they're they're in the bulletin if you uh, like to follow along there. And so my first main point this morning is that Jesus has indeed made you righteous and fulfilled the law. And we see this in Romans chapter 3, 
particularly uh, verse 21. We see it throughout Romans again and again, and we're looking this morning particularly at Romans chapter 6, and I encourage you to have a black church uh, Bible open in front of you or your own Bible. In the black church Bible, it's page 1116. 1116. But I want you to flip back to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, to see that Jesus has made us righteous and fulfilled the law. Romans 21 uh, basically, to verse 26 is one of those key texts in the Bible. That's if you're going to memorize a little slab of scripture, this is one to go for. Uh, verse 21 reads, "But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been known, made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe." See that verse 22? This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. If you believe, you have righteousness from Jesus Christ. And then he says, of course, that you need that. Keeps going in verse 22, the second sentence there. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody needs to be made righteous through Christ because they have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then it continues, verse 24, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Verse 24 tells us that we are righteous. We are justified freely. The word justify means to be made right, to be declared legally that you are okay in the law's eyes, that you are, you've upheld the law. And we are made that, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And then it explains why, verse 25, how this can be the case. Did God just say, it's all right, um, I'm going to forgive the law. Jesus says it's okay, um, all your transgressions are forgiven. No, he says how it happens. Verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. A sacrifice of atonement. Jesus doesn't just say, it's okay, the punishment, we'll just ignore that, that sin that you've committed and the punishment that goes with it. No, Jesus takes the punishment so that you can be made legally right. He is a sacrifice of atonement, which means that he bore the wrath and the punishment of God so that you wouldn't have to, so that you could be declared righteous instead of unrighteous. You are a sinner falling short of the glory of God, but because of Jesus, because of your faith in him, you are made righteous and have seen uh, seen to have fulfilled the law. Okay, so then that says we can sin as much as we like, doesn't it? Jesus has fulfilled it. All we have to do is believe. And as long as we've ticked that box, the belief box, we're all good. We can sin as much as we like. And it doesn't matter because we're no longer under the the law. It's like we've moved out of home and we're no longer under our parents' laws. We can do whatever we like. Isn't that the case? Well, Paul says no. He says no. Verse 6. Oh, no. Chapter 6, verse 1. Turn over from Romans 3 to chapter 6, verse 1. And it says there, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? 
So he's using that very argument that occurs in our head. We're above the law, so doesn't that mean we can go on sinning? And if we do sin, doesn't that just make God more gracious? Grace increase all the more because Jesus is, is having to pay for that sin, so he looks more and more gracious, more and more merciful. And so God looks more and more wonderful. The more I sin, the more wonderful God is. Shouldn't I do that then? Shouldn't I sin so that grace looks even better? Is that what we should do? Verse 2, by no means, says Paul. By no means. And then he gives an interesting reason as to why. Why shouldn't we sin so that grace may increase all the more? Why shouldn't we sin because we're above the law? The reason is, and that's my second main point this morning, is your baptism reminds you not to sin. Paul brings in an interesting reason as to why we shouldn't go on sinning. And the reason is because you've been baptised and that reminds you of what has happened to you and so you don't sin. Now, we've got to be careful here. Baptism does not save you. We don't teach that. Roman Catholicism does, but we don't. And I don't think the Bible does. That's why we don't teach it. What saves you? Well, we just looked at that in Romans chapter 3. Faith saves you. Trust in Jesus saves you. That's what saves you. Being baptised doesn't save you. But baptism reminds you of what has happened so that you don't sin. Baptism is an external reminder of what has happened internally, the baptism that you have experienced in your hearts. An internal baptism is represented by the outward baptism. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. That's what baptism is. And so what does the baptism remind you of? What does it remind you that has happened in your life? Well, there's two things that it reminds us of, and they're given to us in this text. He says in verse 2, By no means we died to sin. Now how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Your baptism reminds you that you died with Christ. When, you were, when Jesus was at the cross, you were there with him. You were there dying with him. And your baptism reminds you of that fact. How does it remind you of that fact? Well, when you go down in the water, you're going down into a fairly hostile environment. You can't stay underwater very long without dying or getting some access to oxygen. And so you're going down into a hostile environment. And so you recognise that you're going down into a hostile environment just as you went with Jesus to the cross, to the hostile environment that he received as he hung on the cross and there died. And so your baptism reminds you that you died with with Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. You were baptised into his death. And then there's another way that it reminds you that you died. It reminds you by the fact that there's a burial associated with the death there. And so that goes on in verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We ask how dead was Jesus? On the cross. Did he really die? Yes, he really died. 
And one of the ways that we know he really died is because he was buried. He was put into the tomb. When you're buried, it says that you're dead. We don't bury people alive. We bury dead people. And so the question you ask is, did I really die with Christ? Yes, to the point of burial. You were buried with Christ, Paul says here. You were so dead that you were buried with him. And even we recognise that as we bury people, that yes, they have to be dead if we're going to bury them. And if, we, if they aren't, if we bury them alive, they don't stay alive very long anyway. They soon die under the ground. When we get baptised, we are reminded that we were buried with Christ. And this is so true. As you go down, you go into a hostile environment, but you're completely enclosed. You're buried with Christ under the water. And so it reminds you of, as to what has happened to you, that you died with him to the point of burial. You were really dead with Christ. And what's the other way that baptism reminds you not to sin? It says that you're dead. Well, what's the other thing? What does he say in verse 4? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We didn't stay dead and buried with Jesus. If we believe in him, we are raised to life with him as well. We participate in his resurrection by faith. We are made alive. There's lots of dead people walking around still in their sins. But those who have trusted in Jesus have been raised to life. You have a new life. And your baptism reminds you of this as well. As you come up out of the water, you're coming up out of the tomb, up out of the burial that you've experienced, and you're coming to a new life. You've left the old life behind and you're coming up into a new life. And this encourages you not to sin because you now have left the life of sin behind, you've died to that, and you're now in a life of righteousness instead. That's what he says there. He says, We therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, a new life, a life of righteousness, not sin any longer. Yes, you've been set free from the law, but you've been set free for a life of righteousness, not for a life of just sinning as much as you want to because you know Jesus has paid for the sins for you. No, you're set free. You've been raised for a new life of righteousness to live according to God's laws, not because that saves you and gets you into heaven, but because that's what you've been raised to life for. You've been raised to live a life of holiness. So what are the implications of this? If baptism reminds you not to sin, you think, when you're going to sin, you think, no, I can't sin because I was baptised and my testimony at my baptism is that I died with Jesus and I was raised to life. And if I keep on sinning, I'm making my baptism invalid. I'm making the baptism a weak testimony because I'm not living a new life at all. My baptism is futile then. It's not a witness at all because I'm going on in sinning. What are the implications of this? Well, that's my third main point this morning, is baptism is for believers 
by immersion. Baptism is for believers by immersion. Baptism has to be for believers. If baptism is to be a reminder of your death, burial and resurrection with Jesus, how can we administer it to unbelievers who haven't died, who haven't been buried and who haven't been raised to life with Jesus? It would make the whole symbol of baptism stupid, foolish, because we're administering it to people who have it's got no symbolic meaning for them at all. So we have to make sure that if baptism is going to be a reminder to us not to sin, that has to be administered appropriately. So we at this church only administer baptism to people who are believers. We don't give it to unbelievers if we can help it. Now, of course, we don't know exactly who are believers and who are not. Only God sees the heart. But we can get a fair idea. There's different flags that go up as to understanding about the gospel message. And there's different flags that go up about people's behaviour. And so you should see some change in people's behaviour. The Bible encourages us to look at people's good works as an indication as to where they stand with the Lord. And so we do this when we're going to baptise someone. We make sure that they've got the gospel right in their heads and that they are exhibiting good works. That they're not living a life of sin, but are living a new life, a life of righteousness. And so we make sure those are the people that we baptise. So we exclude unbelievers, and this also means we exclude people that we can't examine properly. Who are those? Well, they're infants and children. We as Baptists exclude children because we can't examine them as to whether they have died, been buried, and raised with Jesus. We've got no idea where they're at with the Lord. And so we're going to make a mockery of the symbol of baptism if we administer it to children who haven't died, who haven't been buried and haven't been raised to life with Jesus. Is that the only implication? That we must make sure it's for believers? Well, what was my third main point? Baptism is for believers by immersion. Immersion means to go under the water completely. And so that means the implication of what Paul is saying here is that baptism by sprinkling isn't baptism at all. One reason why we say that's the case is because the word baptize, baptizo in the Greek language, means to immerse. It doesn't mean to sprinkle something. It means to plunge. You, know, you wash your hands, you plunge them underwater, or you actually go deep under the water. The Greek word means immerse. But then, even so... To baptise by sprinkling, of course, damages the visual symbol that God has given us here. Humans love visuals. You just look at the size of our television sets to understand that. They just seem to get bigger and bigger. Mine seems to stay the same, but eventually, I will be when that one dies, I'll have to get another one, and they just seem to be, these days, you can't get the size that I, I have now, or and the quality has improved. You can't buy the, what is it, cathode-rayed ones, cathode-rayed tubes. Um, you've got to get the LCD or the plasma these days. Our, we show that we love visuals, and the computer games, the consoles, they keep coming out. Why is that for computer games? Most of you don't play computer games here, but some of you do, you aren't playing Pac-Man anymore. You're playing computer games that have great visuals. 
the consoles keep getting stronger and stronger and the games get uh, embrace the, and they harness the power that comes from those consoles and give you better and better visuals. We love visuals. And we see this even with children and what they have up in their bedrooms. They have posters up. And they have posters up of the celebrities. They have posters up of music uh, artists. They have posters up of people in their bedrooms because they love visuals. They love visual reminders. Now, when it comes to God, we can't pin up a poster of God in our bedrooms because God is a spirit and he's invisible. Although we've got Jesus came into the world incarnate in the flesh, but he came at a time when we didn't have digital cameras around and we didn't have YouTube to take uh, video him and put it up there. So we don't know what Jesus looked like. You have artists that try and make some sort of impression, but it's interesting how Jesus always tends to be white in our artist impressions when he's from the Middle East. Um, it's, he, he, there's probably very slim chance he was anything looking like um, the artist impressions that we have. We can't have pin-up posters of God. But we can embrace some of the visuals that he has given us. And he's given us two major visual reminders in the church of him. What are they? First one is Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. It's a visual reminder that God has instituted for us to remember Jesus' death. As we take the bread and drink the grape juice, we are reminded visually, and we have an experience there where we digest it, we put it in our mouths, we're reminded of Jesus' body given for us and his blood shed for us. And then the other visual is, of course, baptism, instituted by God to remind us of our death, burial and resurrection with Jesus. And so we want to make sure that of the two visuals that God has given us, We make the most of them. We really want to embrace the visuals. We can't have statues of God. We can't have uh, pictures of him. But we've got these two visuals that God has given us. And we love visuals. We've got to make sure that we embrace them and we get the full value from them. You don't want to have Christ's death sprinkled on you. You want to be plunged into Christ's death. You don't want to have a burial with Christ that's a bit of sprinkling of dust, sort of some sort of action of, yes, sprinkle, yes, you're buried. No one's dead and buried with just a sprinkling. To be laid on the ground and called that a grave is an insult. You bury a body. You don't sprinkle it with dust. And so if we just go by sprinkling with baptism, we lose that visual of burial with Christ. And then we want, don't want to be raised from a sprinkling. Being raised from a sprinkling thing seems strange. It's like being raised from rain. You don't get raised out of rain. You walk through rain. Being sprinkled and calling that a baptism, is, it doesn't embrace that visual of being raised with Christ. Whereas if you're immersed, you come right up. And it's seen to be you're raised with Christ. So baptism by immersion... It's like the Blu-ray DVD on a massive LCD screen with surround sound of baptism. It's the real deal. It's embracing the visual to the full extent. 
Whereas a baptism by sprinkling, it's like trying to tune in the TV and all you get is snow. You can't really see anything there and you say, oh, it's a snowstorm in this movie. You know, where you try and tune it in and there's nothing there. It's not tuning in the TV at all. It's nothing. And so baptism by sprinkling, it's not a baptism. Whereas the full Blu-ray DVD version, it's the full immersion. It's embracing that visual that God has given us of how we have been plunged into Jesus' death, buried with him, and raised to life. And so that's why Chan and Alicia are undergoing baptism today, by immersion. They want to fulfill God's command and be baptised, and they want to embrace the visual that God has given them. And so then the argument of Paul's here as to why they should stop sinning can apply to them. When, they, when Satan comes into their head and says, you know, Jesus has forgiven all the sins that you've committed in the past, all the sins that you do now, and all the sins that you do in the future, so why don't you go and sin as much as you like? They'll say no. Why not? Because Paul says, remember my baptism and what happened that day, that I was telling people, I've, been, I've died with Christ, I've been buried with him, and I've been raised to newness of life. And if I sin like you're trying to tell me, Satan, I'm making a mockery of my baptism that day. My baptism isn't a reminder of that at all because I'm just going on sinning. I haven't been raised to new life at all. That's Chan and Alicia. What about you? Does the fact of your external baptism remind you of the inward reality that has happened to you, your death, your burial, and your resurrection with Christ? When you're tempted to sin, do you think about the day of your baptism and think, that's going to make a mockery of that if I sin, if I listen to Satan and think that I'm above the law and can go on sinning as much as I want? I don't want to make that day a mockery. I want to make sure that that day really represented what had happened in my life, that I had died, been buried and raised to life. Well, maybe you answer no to that question about does the fact of your external baptism spur you on to newness of life and stop sinning? Maybe it's because you're not a Christian at all. If that's you... I encourage you to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus right now. Believe in his death for you so that you are dying with him at the cross, you are buried with him, and you are raised to life. Do it now. Repent of your sins and believe. Do not go to hell for eternal punishment. Instead, go to heaven. And then... Start to live a life of obedience to him. Not because it saves you, but because you have been saved. And then get baptised. Come and tell me afterwards that you've repented and believed. And we'll sit down and we'll go through what that means and where you stand with the Lord. And we'll look at baptising you. So that then that is a reminder to you not to sin. Or maybe you're an unbaptised Christian. Well, then I ask, what are you waiting for? If you are an unbaptized Christian, you're missing out on applying Paul's argument when Satan whispers in your head. This argument here of remembering your baptism doesn't apply to you because you haven't been baptized. Why are you letting that happen? 
If you get baptized, you'll be able to apply this argument to its fullness. When Satan whispers and says, go on sinning, you'll say, no. I remember my baptism. I remember that said, I died to sin. I was buried with Christ and I've been raised to life. And I will not sin and make my baptism a mockery, foolishness. Instead, I will remember what has happened to me and live a life of obedience to God. Let us speak with our God now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and what it reveals to us. And we thank you for the way that you have given us these visual reminders of Jesus' death for us, that you have given us communion and you have given us baptism. Lord, help us to understand these visual reminders rightly. Remember that they do not save us, but they remind us of what has happened to us. And so they spur us on to live a life of holiness before you. Lord, we do pray for Chan and Alicia today. We pray that this day may be remembered by them so that they are spurred on to a newness of life, a life of righteousness, a life of love for you, and that when Satan whispers to them to sin against you, they will say no, because their baptism reminds them of this fact, that they should not live a life of unholiness, but a life of holiness. And Lord, we pray for anyone here this morning who is not a believer, who has not trusted in Jesus' death for them. May they realize that one day they will have to die for their sins themselves. Lord, make them trust in Jesus today so that they died with him, are buried with him and are raised to life just as Jesus was. And Lord, may we be able to rejoice in their baptism here in this church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.